Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. God bless you. Merry Christmas as we lean into the Christmas season here. Uh, Real Life uh, exists to lead people to Jesus and to be a community of grace with a God-sized vision for every generation. And what that means is that we want to exist for a lost world around us. And like the good shepherd who came before us to go into the world seeking to love people in Jesus' name. And I have found in all of my experience and all of my years of ministry, Christmas is the best and easiest time to extend invitations to people to join the family of faith. It's the easiest time to talk about Jesus, to offer to pray for people, to invite people to Christmas Eve services. And if we really want to invite people to know Jesus and to be part of our family of faith, this is the season in which to do it. So I hope you're praying for somebody. I have three people I'm praying for uh, that They would find a home with Jesus and a home with us. And so I hope you're doing the same. This is a great season in which to do it. So today we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke. And as I told you, we're going to go back and pick up the the birth stories in Luke 1 and 2 uh, as we get close to Christmas in the coming weeks. But right now, uh, I want to look at a text in the Gospel of Luke in which somebody gave Jesus an excellent present. And since this is the season of gift giving... I want to talk about the best Christmas present that you and I could give to Jesus this season. All right, let's pray first. uh, Dive into prayer with me. Jesus, I thank you that you love us and that you are a good gift to us, that you walked this earth, God and man, so that we could know you and know how deeply we are loved. Please come and change our identity with your love. Help us to become new people in your love. Help us to become people transformed by obedience to you. And may your goodness and your power and your love transcend through the brokenness of this world and make us the people you mean for us to be. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right. uh, We're going to dive into the Gospel of Luke now. We've been plodding along through Luke. And I want to read a story uh, from the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. So if you have been joining us uh, either online at reallife.la or if you're sitting over there in the Glendora campus uh, watching uh, from over there, uh, you know that we've been in Luke for a while now and you know that there's been a theme of surprise that runs through the Gospel of Luke. Everybody who encounters Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is surprised. There's something different about this passage. So understanding that context, as I read this passage, Think about what's different about this story. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. That's a city on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did most of his ministry. It was kind of his home base. There, a centurion's servant. So this is an employee of the Roman Empire, not a Jewish person. So not an insider in the Jewish faith. And remember, in the Jewish faith, Being an insider counted for everything. Uh, Outsiders were unclean and they were a threat. So this guy is an outsider. There was a centurion's servant 
whom his master valued highly. Uh, uh, there, there a, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. So the centurion, the Roman, has somebody who works for him who's very sick but very important to him. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. So built our nation, uh, it, it's, it might be the case that the servant is a Jewish person working for the Roman centurion. It might be the case that we're talking about the centurion himself that in some way has contributed to the, to the nation in which he lives. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent some friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Now, now bear in mind, a Roman citizen, a Roman centurion saw a Jewish person as a conquered people, lesser than the citizens, not as important than them. So for a Roman to say to a Jewish person, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof is an incredibly honorific move. It is the uh, upper class saying to the lower class, you're better than me. <clears throat> um, Lord, do not trouble, trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. He understands hierarchy. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, I fully recognize Jesus' authority to give commands over the powers of this world, including the healing of sickness. I fully acknowledge that in the hierarchy of things, Jesus stands higher than sickness. And Jesus, therefore, has the power to command sickness to go. The Roman doesn't have to go in and meet his, uh, his lower uh, uh, servants, his, his servants or his, uh, the soldiers who answer to him. He doesn't have to go see them face to face. He's in charge. He can just send the order. And they have to do what he says. And he recognizes that Jesus has the same kind of authority over this world. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Jesus was amazed at the centurion. And turning to the crowd, following him, turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. So even among the insiders, I don't see the kind of faith that I see in this outsider. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. The servant is now healed. Jesus heals him from a distance because this Roman has acknowledged that Jesus has the power just to give the command, and the servant is healed. Now, understand how important the context of a passage actually is. If you had not been reading through the Gospel of Luke, if we had not been going through this together and noting that in every text, someone is surprised by Jesus, then you might not realize that this is the first text in which Jesus is surprised. Surprise has changed form in this text. In every text along the way, the people of Nazareth are surprised by Jesus. The teachers of the law are surprised by Jesus. Everybody's surprised by Jesus. And in this text, 
Jesus is surprised. What does it take to surprise the omniscient Lord of all creation? What is it that Jesus wants as a surprise gift from you and I? Faith. The centurion demonstrates an incredible kind of faith, the kind of which Jesus has not seen from the people of faith who say they believe in God. This outsider, this Roman, who in the social hierarchy is higher than Jesus, has recognized Jesus' spiritual authority and said, I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof. I recognize what kind of authority you have. You tell sickness to leave and it will. Jesus is surprised by the great faith of this centurion because he hasn't seen it anywhere else. So if you want to know what kind of gift Jesus wants from you and I for Christmas this year, if you want to know what to wrap up, wrap up and put under the tree for Jesus, Jesus wants this kind of faith. Jesus wants to be surprised by amazing faith in which we trust him with absolutely everything. Instead of turning to our worries and anxieties, instead of turning to our anger and control, we say, you know what? The world actually belongs to Jesus. In the hierarchy of everything I worry about, he's on top. And he can absolutely command anything he wants to come or to go. And I can live peacefully in that kind of faith. That's the kind of gift that Jesus wants from you and I this Christmas. Now, remember the wise men set a really high bar for us. They went to Jesus' birthday and they brought gold as a surprise gift. It's kind of hard to meet up with what they already pioneered back then, right? And I'm, now I know, I know the wise men probably showed up and said, okay, now Jesus, we want to make clear, this is both for your birthday and for Christmas. So don't, you're not getting a second present, right? You're just, you just get the one. So I, that's a shout out for all my friends who have Christmas birthdays. You only get the one present. And Jesus is like, oh, it's going to happen the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> but better than gold, a gift for Jesus this Christmas is a faith that honors him and trusts him with everything. That's what he wants. This is the first passage in which Jesus is the one who is surprised. So if that's what Jesus wants for me, if Jesus wants great faith for me, faith that honors him and trusts him with everything, I, I better figure out what faith is. And I say that because a lot of people intuitively think, oh yeah, I know what faith is. And they get it wrong. A lot of us, I see this throughout the church, a lot of us have some very wrong-headed concepts about what faith is. And I want to look at two of them. I want to look at two things that faith is not, and then I want to talk about what faith is. First of all, faith is not a blind leap into something that you have absolutely no reason for. Faith is not just blind commitment to something that all the evidence points away from. That kind of blind faith, the theological word for that is called fideism. It comes from a Latin term. Fideism means just blind faith. You just blindly believe it. And if, if doubts come against you, you just stop doubting. And if there's good reasons not to believe it, you just ignore the reasons and you believe it anyway. That is nonsense. And that is not something that Jesus ever called you or I to. I think some of that traces its way back to a philosopher in the early 19th century, Soren Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard said, it's important to take a, a leap of faith and commit yourself to Jesus. And, and I think the way he said that has sort of infiltrated our culture and given us a false idea of what faith was. What Kierkegaard was talking about, he lived in Denmark, 
what he was talking about was Europe was so Christianized that everybody went to church and everybody called themselves Christians and everybody thought that they were, they were into the kingdom of heaven, but, but nobody actually cared about it. Nobody changed their lives. Nobody lived any differently. They lived as though Jesus had not taught anything about how to live. Uh, Kierkegaard has this great passage uh, I want to read you in which he's kind of making fun of Christianized uh, Northern Europe of the early 1800s. He says, I went into church and I saw on the velvet pew, I, I sat on the velvet pew. I watched as the sun came shining through the, the stained glass windows, very fancy. The minister dressed in a velvet robe, opened up the gold gilded Bible, marked with a silk book, bookmark and said, if any man will be my disciple, said Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross, sell what he has, give it to the poor and follow me. That's actually from the Gospel of Luke, right? And, and, and Kierkegaard says, I looked around and I was the only one laughing. Right? I, I saw this church in which they, they read the teachings of Jesus that they're ignoring. And we need, to, we need to actually leap from that, from socialized suburban Christianity that doesn't mean anything. We need to leap from that into a passionate commitment in which we live wholeheartedly for Jesus. That was what Kierkegaard was meaning to say. But because he used the, the language of a, a leap of faith, I think that language has infiltrated our churches and we now think of it as meaning you just blindly believe in it whether you have a reason or not. I hear people who are not Christians make fun of Christianity because they think that's what Christianity is. It's just a blind leap of faith into stuff you have no reason for. That's not true. That's not true. That's not what Jesus called anyone to. And if you think right now you're just supposed to blindly believe in Jesus with no reason, that no one is asking that of you. That's far more like uh, what I heard from a couple of young men who showed up at my front door a while ago wearing neckties and name badges that said Elder John and Elder Bob, and they wanted to talk about whether or not I wanted to read the Book of Mormon. And I asked them, have you all read the statement from the Smithsonian Institute that says that Mormon history of middle America is just completely bogus? It's just completely unfounded. There's no historical or archaeological evidence to support the Mormon story about what happened in America uh, centuries ago. And this, this Mormon elder looked at me and said, well, that's between you and God. And I said, actually, no, it's between you and the Smithsonian. Because what he was saying is, I just want you to take a blind leap and become a Mormon. He didn't have any evidence for it. In fact, the evidence pointed in another direction. And he said, I just want to turn off my brain and I want to empty my brain and I want to take a blind leap and I want you to do it with me. There's, there's no point to that. You might as well blindly leap to becoming a, a Muslim or becoming an atheist or worshiping crystals. In California, there's all kinds of places you can blindly leap. That's not what the Christian faith calls us to. Look at what happened when the doubting Thomas, the disciple of Jesus, doubted that Jesus had risen from the dead and said, I will not believe until I have evidence, until I can see the holes in Jesus' hands. Then I'll believe that he rose from the dead. Did Jesus say, no, he should just blindly believe in me? No, Jesus went to Thomas and said, Thomas, look, look at the holes in my hands and my feet. It's me. Jesus has never called you and I to fideism, to blind faith. 
Jesus calls us to engage our minds and pursue truth because that will lead us to Jesus. So faith is not that. It's not a blind leap. It's not emptying your brain. Secondly, it's not filling your brain with trivia. It's not reading an encyclopedia about Christian doctrine and memorizing the whole thing. And I see this run throughout the churches. There are all kinds of people who think that if you have faith, it means you learn lots and lots of facts about the Bible and the church and Christian history. And the people with the most facts in their heads are the most spiritual. And I, you know, it sounds like a joke, but I've seen people who think this way. That's absolutely not true. Jesus did not go around holding theological debates and teaching theological classes. He didn't open a seminary. It's a mistake to think that the call of faith is simply a cognitive one. In fact, the people who have done that historically have tended to be destructive in their expressions of faith. Because if faith is only about getting all the facts right, then you get to go around forcing everybody else to have the facts right. Uh, in, the, in the 16th century, the, the early uh, version of the Baptists began to say, we've got our facts wrong. You're not supposed to baptize babies. You have to dunk people, and there are certain ways to do it. And we can no longer worship with people who are doing baptism wrong. So we're going to split off and form a whole different church. And, and not only that, but, but then Christian governments began to persecute Baptists and arrest them for not, not belonging to the church of the state. And even even drown some of them as a punishment for rebelling against the religion of the state. This is all being done by people who follow the guy who said, love your enemies and treat other people the way you want to be treated. All over a sacrament that celebrates the fact that when we believe in Jesus, he washes away our sins and make us, makes us new and sets us free to love. People do all kinds of destructive things when they think faith is about getting the facts right and you better have them right or else you're in trouble. You know who has all the facts right about the faith? Demons. Demons have all the facts about the faith. They know absolutely everything that's true about God and heaven and earth and everything else. They have all the facts right in their head. But do not invite them to our Christmas Eve services. Getting the facts right in your head is not what faith is. It's important to know which God you're following so that you're not led astray. But it's a confusion to believe that Jesus cares more about you getting the facts right in your head than you loving your neighbor. So, faith is not a blind leap where we just wipe our brains clean, nor is it a, a compendium of doctrine where we just get all the facts right in our head. It's not those two things. So what is it? Well, Look at this centurion. What did he do? How did he approach Jesus? What did he say? Faith is about trusting so much in the love and power of Jesus that you would do anything to honor him and depend on him. That's what the centurion does. He, he trusts so much in the stories that he has heard. He has, he has evidence, reason to believe that what he's heard about Jesus is true. And he honors Jesus by saying, I am unworthy to have you in my house. I recognize your authority. And I know that you have the power simply to command that things would come to pass the way they're supposed to. I put all of my faith, all of my trust in your authority. And that's what faith is. 
Faith is trusting so much in the love and power of Jesus that you would do anything to honor him and depend on him. And that's why healing occurs for the centurion's servant. So, if you are wrestling with issues of health, or if someone you love is wrestling with issues of health, put all your hope and trust in Jesus. Honor him above all else and recognize his authority. Put everything in his hands and ask specifically and exactly for what you want. Don't dance around the topic and say, do whatever you want, Jesus. Say, Jesus, I want to be healed. Jesus, I want my loved one to be healed. Put everything in his hands and then say, Jesus, I absolutely trust you no matter what. Because we're not going to make anybody live forever on this side. That's, that's not what happens. We've all got a due date. And it comes for all of us. So Jesus, no matter what happens, I know that life is finite. I know that I will not live forever on this earth. Jesus, no matter what happens, I absolutely trust you with everything. It all belongs to you. And what you do is always right. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe, one, that he exists, and two, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We have to believe that God is there, and we believe, have to believe that he's on our side. This is what the centurion believed. The centurion believed that Jesus was God, that the stories that he had heard about him working miracles were true. And he believed that Jesus was on his side, that Jesus would do right by him. And that's faith. And that's what it takes to please God. You and I know what it's like to live our lives for God and to experience God on the move because we've experienced it as a church. Um, every time I read this passage, I'm reminded of a story that happened in this church uh, when I was preaching on this passage before. See, I write my sermons two weeks in advance. So there was a, a week that came a few years ago where I had written a sermon on this passage, but it wasn't for the coming Sunday. It was for the Sunday after that. But on, on that next Sunday, before I was preaching on that passage, a, a father from our congregation came up to me after the services. And he said, I'm desperate. My son is sick. And it didn't even occur to me at that time that I had just written a sermon the week before about uh, somebody at, coming, to, coming to Jesus and saying, hey, somebody in my household is sick. I'm desperate. But it was the same scenario playing out. Somebody came and said, I need prayer. I'm desperate. My son is sick. The son had a horrible a unique disease that was just eating up his body from the inside. He was a teenager and he had had to drop out of school and all of his life had fallen apart. His hair had fallen out and he was about to have to go into a surgery in which one of his eyes was going to be removed because of the damage, the nerve damage that was going on inside his head. They, they expected that the boy would not live. And this father came to me and said, I need prayer, I'm desperate. And so we, we held hands and we prayed for this, this young man. And, and the boy was not here. He wasn't well enough to come to church, but the, the mom, dad, and I held hands and prayed for the boy. The next Sunday, when I was actually preaching on this text, the dad came back to me and said, something happened. They were, they, they were able to change the schedules and the specialist that we were not gonna be able to be, be able to see for months can see us now. And so we're seeing the specialist tomorrow on Monday. The next week I saw him again and he says, 
something happened. We went to see the specialist, and the specialist looked at my son and examined him and said, I don't know what's happened, but something seems to have changed directions. And we don't have to remove your eye. Things seem to be better than they were. I told you that story back then, and we prayed together as a congregation for that boy. And his health got better and better. And he's now back to life. The experience of watching someone turn to Jesus with absolute faith to honor him and trust him Change the way I forever after will read this passage. You and I know what it's like as a church to trust Jesus and to watch Jesus show up. Everything we do as a church is built around the idea that we're going to trust Jesus and watch Jesus show up. We run a pantry now that feeds over 500 people every month. We, we give our time and our resources for the sake of generosity, to care for people we never have met before. And we, we offer to pray with every single person who goes through our parking lot at those pantries. We do that because we want to honor Jesus and put everything in his hands. We continue to host a Japanese congregation absolutely for free because they were dislocated during the pandemic. We give our time and our resources, absolutely believing that if we honor Jesus with everything, Jesus will show up. We're going to, to Mexico in January to help build a church for a community that, that we may never uh, encounter face-to-face -face except when we're down there. And we do that to give our time and our resources to absolutely put Jesus first, to honor him in everything and trust that he will show up. We have students mini student ministries and children's ministries and small groups that have continued to make the gospel known in our communities and in our neighborhood to people who might might not have previously had a church. We, we have a preschool where uh, over 100 kids every week come to chapel where I or one of the staff members leads a chapel service for the kids and they hear the gospel of Jesus every week. Many of these kids live in families that don't go to church and don't have faith. And we do this. We put our, our time and our resources freely. We, we give them away freely in the belief that if we honor Jesus and put him first, Jesus will show up. And look at what has happened as a result. In the last year, we've baptized over 20 people yet again. We've continued to see our, our ministries grow and our attendance is about 30% higher than it was last year. We continue to reach out to people who have not known Jesus or who used to know Jesus and whose relationship with him has just grown cold through the years. And because of the way you as a church have generously and graciously reached out, we've seen 121 people in our relationships and in our circles make a first-time commitment of faith this year and decide to follow Jesus. And we have more baptisms already on the calendar. All of this has happened because we want to live lives of faith. We want to surprise Jesus with the best Christmas gift we can give him, the best birthday present we can give him. What Jesus wants for us is for us to recognize his authority over all things. And instead of living in anxiety, and instead of trying to take control over the world around us, to simply surrender it to him and say, 
Jesus, we don't even deserve to have you come in our houses, but we know that you have authority over all things. So we put our lives in your hands. And no matter what happens, we know that you are good. Jesus, we absolutely, wholeheartedly trust you. And when we do that, Jesus will say, wow, I've never seen faith like this before. That's what he wants for Christmas. Right now, I'm going to pray. And if, if you want to give Jesus a gift like that, if you've never decided to follow him before, right now in prayer, say to him, Jesus, I want to follow you. If you, if you remember following Jesus, but for some reason through the years, your faith has grown cold, and it feels like it's been a long time since you've been close to Jesus. Right now in prayer, say, Jesus, I want to rekindle that flame. I want to live life with you again. Uh, if you've never decided to be baptized before, let us know now's the time to take that step and make a commitment of faith. The baptismal here at Real Life is heated. You can do this in December. Make that commitment of faith. Or, or maybe what happens next is that as you look at 2023, the year to come, you say, Jesus, I'm going to stretch my faith and I'm going to trust you in ways that I never have before. Whichever step it is for you, pray with me now. Jesus, I thank you that you love us and that you call us out of stale, calm, meaningless life and into passionate faith in which we live for you. I thank you that you walk the earth so that we could know you, so that we could enter into a relationship with you and learn to entirely trust you with everything we have. So Jesus, I ask that your spirit would now move and touch the hearts of everyone listening. And place in our minds that vision of the next step that you want us to take. For those who need to take the step of committing to you, we pray it now. Jesus, come into our lives. We believe that you live for us and that you died for us and that you rose again. We put our faith in you. Or some of us are ready to say, Jesus, it's been a long time. And we need to return to you. So Jesus, we return to you and ask that you return and fill our hearts the way you once did. And some of us are ready to pray, Jesus, give us a vision for the year to come. Stretch our faith in new ways that we might absolutely trust you and learn the power and the peace that come from recognizing that you are Lord and you are God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and an early Merry Christmas to you. I'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.